welcome to the Respiratory Care Podcast for July 2010. This is Dean Hess, editor of the journal. Sarah Forge will read the abstracts and I will return with some commentary on this month's papers. The first paper this month is Influence of Nebulizer Type, Position, and Bias Flow on Aerosol Drug Delivery in Simulated Pediatric and Adult Lung Models During Mechanical Ventilation by RE and colleagues. The objective of this study was to determine the influence of nebulizer position and bias flow with a jet nebulizer and a vibrating mesh nebulizer on aerosol drug delivery in simulated and mechanically ventilated pediatric and adult patients. Albuterol was nebulized with a jet nebulizer and a vibrating mesh nebulizer using simulated pediatric and adult lung models. The two nebulizer positions were 1. A jet nebulizer placed 15 centimeters from the Y-piece adapter and a vibrating mesh nebulizer attached directly to the Y-piece. And two, the jet nebulizer placed prior to the heated humidifier with 15 centimeters of large bore tubing and a vibrating mesh nebulizer positioned at an inlet to the humidifier. A ventilator with heated humidifier and ventilator circuit was utilized in both lung models. The adult ventilator settings were tidal volume of 500 milliliters, PEEP 5 centimeters water, respiratory rate of 20 breaths per minute, peak inspiratory flow 60 liters per minute, and a descending waveform. The pediatric ventilator settings were tidal volume 100 milliliters, PEEP 5 centimeters of water, respiratory rate of 20 breaths per minute, inspiratory time 1 second. They evaluated bias flows of 2 and 5 liters per minute. The adult and pediatric models used 8 millimeter and 5 millimeter inner diameter endotracheal tubes, respectively. The albuterol was eluted from the filter and analyzed via spectrophotometry. Nebulizer placement prior to the humidifier increased drug delivery with both the jet nebulizer and the vibrating mesh nebulizer, with a greater increase with the vibrating mesh nebulizer. Higher bias flow reduced drug delivery. Drug delivery with a vibrating mesh nebulizer was two to four fold greater than with the jet nebulizer at all positions in both lung models. The authors concluded that during simulated mechanical ventilation in pediatric and adult models, bias flow and nebulizer type and position impact aerosol drug delivery. The next paper also by RE et al., is Evaluation of Aerosol Generator Devices at Three Locations in Humidified and Non-Humidified Circuits During Adult Mechanical Ventilation. In this study, drug delivery from jet, vibrating mesh, and ultrasonic nebulizers and pressurized meter dose inhaler with spacer was compared in a model of adult mechanical ventilation with heated humidified and non-humidified ventilator circuits. Albuterol was aerolyzed at three circuit positions, one, between the endotracheal tube and the Y-piece, two, 15 centimeters from the Y-piece, and three, 15 centimeters from the ventilator, with each device using adult settings. The drug deposited on a filter distal to an 8 millimeter inner diameter endotracheal tube was eluded and analyzed via spectrophotometry and is reported as a percent of total nominal or emitted dose. 
the Vibrating Mesh Nebulizer, Ultrasonic Nebulizer, and Meter Dose Inhaler with Spacer were most efficient in position 2 with both non-humidified and heated humidified circuits. In contrast, the Jet Nebulizer was most efficient in position 3 under both non-humidified and heated humidified conditions. In positions 2 and 3, all devices delivered two-fold more drug under non-humidified than under heated humidified conditions. At position 1, only the meter dose inhaler delivered substantially more drug than with the non-humidified circuit. The authors conclude that, during mechanical ventilation, the optimal drug delivery efficiency depends on the aerosol generator, the ventilator circuit, and the aerosol generator position. Improvement in Emergency Airway Equipment Transport is by Wilcox et al. The authors hypothesized that a system using multiple smaller bags to transport airway equipment would decrease weight, facilitate prompt location of equipment, and reduce the risk of bags acting as fomites. Small nylon laryngoscope bags with dividers to keep equipment organized were purchased. The contents of the previously used bag and the new bag were cataloged, and both bags were weighed. Fourteen clinicians working on emergency airway consults at the time of the study were timed as they searched the bags for predetermined equipment with two scenarios and intubated a mannequin. The surfaces of the bags were swabbed for culture. Clinicians were significantly faster locating equipment in the new bag compared with the prior bag, with a difference of 39 seconds in the first scenario and 22 seconds in the second. The cultures from the previously used bags demonstrated coagulase-negative staphylococcus, enterococcus, bacillus species, alpha-hemolytic streptococcus, non-hemolytic streptococcus, and staphylococcus species of the second type. Cultures of the new bag after clinical use but before cleaning grew rare aspergillosis species. The culture of the new bag after proper cleaning demonstrated no growth. The authors concluded that exchanging a large canvas bag for several smaller nylon bags has improved the transport of emergency airway equipment with benefits in carrying the bag, locating equipment, and reducing the transport of pathogens throughout the hospital. Intervention to Improve Respiratory Therapist's Comfort with End-of-Life Care is by Brown Saltzman and colleagues. The authors developed an interdisciplinary program to introduce practicing respiratory therapists to ethical and end-of-life issues and evaluated the program with a dedicated survey instrument. A convenient sample of respiratory therapists from a university hospital and nearby community hospitals participated in a one-day interactive program that included role play and didactic components. The questionnaire completed before and after the program included scales of comfort with end-of-life care and role in end-of-life care and knowledge in disease. Nearly all the respiratory therapists had recently encountered end-of-life situations, yet most had not received dedicated training and felt ill-prepared to deal with these situations. One-third reported distress related to withdrawal of treatment. 
The 78 participants who completed both the before and after surveys had increased comfort with end-of-life care and their perception of their role in end-of-life care. Knowledge about end-of-life care also increased. The authors concluded that a one-day interactive educational intervention can improve short-term RT comfort and role perception concerning end-of-life care. Next is the paper by Guerin et al. The Short-Term Effects of Intermittent Positive Pressure Breathing Treatments on Ventilation in Patients with Neuromuscular Disease. The authors conducted a prospective physiologic short-term study in stable neuromuscular patients to determine the effects of IPPB with and without abdominal belt on regional lung ventilation. IPPB was performed as 30 consecutive deep breaths up to 30 centimeters water face mask pressure each, 10 in supine position, 10 in left lateral position, and 10 in right lateral position. Each patient received IPPB sessions with and without an abdominal belt in a random order at one-day intervals. Patients were then followed up to three hours after IPPB. Lung ventilation was measured via electrical impedance tomography in four lung quadrants. Baseline tidal volume and exhaled tidal volume after each deep breath were also measured. The primary outcome was maintenance of regional ventilation after three hours. Global electrical impedance tidal volume remained significantly higher than at baseline as long as three hours after the IPPB sessions. Global and regional electrical impedance tidal volume at the end of the three-hour study period was significantly higher with the abdominal belt in place. Regional ventilation did not change significantly. With IPPB in the supine position, electrical impedance tidal volume was significantly greater in the anterior than the posterior lung regions. With IPPB in supine position, median and interquartile range tidal volume values increased from 0.25 liters to 1.5 liters. There were no differences in regional ventilation. The authors conclude that, in patients with neuromuscular disease, supine IPB treatments with or without abdominal belt increased ventilation to anterior lung region compared with the left lateral and right lateral positions. Global ventilation three hours after IPBB treatments remained higher than at baseline and was best preserved with the use of an abdominal belt. Four-year calibration stability of the EZ-1 portable spirometer is by Sklut et al. The EZ-1 ultrasonic flow-sensing spirometer was chosen for use by the clinical centers at the 2002 inception of the World Trade Center Worker and Volunteer Medical Screening Program. The screening program quality control procedure required that the expiratory and inspiratory volume accuracy of each spirometer be checked every day of testing and that the flow accuracy linearity be checked every week. The calibration check results were transferred to a central database for summary. Over 5,000 calibration check results were accumulated from a total of 34 spirometers during the period of February 2003 through March 2007. The mean single-speed calibration errors were negative 2 milliliters for exhalation and negative 10 milliliters for inhalation. 
98% of the exhalation and 97% of the inhalation calibration checks were accurate within 3%. There was no evidence of significant nonlinearity according to the results of the three speed calibration checks. The authors concluded that the EASY-1 retained inhalation and exhalation volume accuracy of better than 3% for at least four years. Routine multiple speed volume calibration checks may not be necessary with the EASY-1. Next we have the paper by Murata et al. Effects of inspiratory rise time on triggering workload during pressure support ventilation a lung model study. In a bench study, the authors investigated the effect of inspiratory rise time on inspiratory workload during pressure support ventilation in six ICU ventilators. They measured flow and pressure at the airway opening at PEEP of 5 cm water, pressure support of 5 cm water and 10 cm water, four triggering sensitivities, and three inspiratory drives. The authors chose three inspiratory rise time levels with each ventilator. The inspiratory delay time was defined as the time between the onset of inspiration and the return of pressure at the airway opening to baseline. As an indicator of inspiratory workload, the authors calculated the pressure time product of the pressure at the airway opening over the delay time. Short inspiratory rise time reduced delay time and pressure time product regardless of the pressure support level, triggering sensitivity, or inspiratory drive. Pressure time product and delay time differed significantly among the ventilators. A combination of short inspiratory rise time, high pressure support, and sharp triggering sensitivity resulted in the smallest pressure time, product, and delay time. The authors concluded that short inspiratory rise time decreased inspiratory workload regardless of the pressure support level, triggering sensitivity, or inspiratory drive. Inspiratory workload can be maximally lowered by a combination of a short inspiratory rise time, a sharp triggering sensitivity, and a high inspiratory pressure support level for a given patient's inspiratory effort. Adjuncts to physical training of patients with severe COPD, oxygen or non-invasive ventilation, is by Borgi Silva et al. 28 patients with stable COPD undergoing an exercise training program were randomized to either NIV or supplemental oxygen during group training to maintain peripheral oxygen saturation greater than or equal to 90%. Physical training consisted of treadmill walking at 70% of maximal speed three times a week for six weeks. Patients were assessed at baseline and after six weeks. Assessments included physiological adaptations during incremental exercise testing, exercise tolerance during a six-minute walk test, leg fatigue, maximum inspiratory pressure, and health-related quality of life. Two patients in each group dropped out due to COPD exacerbations and lack of exercise program adherence, and 24 patients completed the training program. Both groups improved their six-minute walk distance, symptoms, and health-related quality of life. However, there were no significant differences between NIV and supplemental oxygen groups in lactate speed ratio, six-minute walk distance, or leg fatigue.
In addition, changes in oxygen saturation, oxygen consumption, and dyspnea were higher with NIV than with supplemental oxygen. The authors concluded that NIV alone is better than supplemental oxygen alone to promote beneficial physiologic adaptations to physical exercise in patients with severe COPD. The final original research paper this month is by Hashemi. Its title is Occupational Exposures and Obstructive Lung Disease, a Case Control Study in Hairdressers. This study was designed as a case control study to evaluate the risk of developing obstructive lung disease in relation to occupational exposures in hairdressers. The authors interviewed a cohort of 50 female hairdressers and 50 matched controls recruited from a random sample of the general population using a validated questionnaire for occupational respiratory disease to compare the prevalence of work-initiated and work-related respiratory symptoms in both groups. They also performed pulmonary function tests in all participants. Almost half of the hairdressers reported work-initiated respiratory symptoms. Cough and breathlessness were the most common self-reported symptoms after chemical exposures. All respiratory symptoms were significantly higher in the hairdressers than in the control group. The hairdressers reported that bleaching powder and hairspray were the most irritant chemicals that provoke their respiratory symptoms. The impaired pulmonary function test values in the hairdressers, compared to the matched controls, was in line with the questionnaire data. The authors concluded that hairdressing work is associated with a high frequency of work-initiated respiratory symptoms and, to a lesser extent, with allergic symptoms, particularly after exposure to bleaching powder and hairspray. Pulmonary function test results were significantly lower among the hairdressers, which might be a predictor for developing obstructive lung disease. Prevalence of serious bleeding events and intracranial hemorrhage in patients receiving activated protein C, a systematic review and meta-analysis, is by Kahn and colleagues. The authors searched the Medline and MBase databases for studies that described the prevalence of serious bleeding events and intracranial hemorrhage in patients receiving activated protein C. They calculated the bleeding rates by calculating proportions and 95% confidence intervals for each study, and then pooled the data to derive a pooled proportion and 95% confidence intervals. The search yielded 17 studies, which included 10,679 patients. The occurrence of serious bleeding events in patients receiving activated protein C ranged from 0.5% to 9.6%, and the pooled prevalence was 3.3%. The occurrence of intracranial hemorrhage ranged from 0% to 1.4%, and the pooled prevalence was 0.44%. Sensitivity analysis showed a higher prevalence of bleeding in the observational studies than in the randomized controlled trials. There was substantial clinical and statistical heterogeneity, but no evidence of publication bias. The authors concluded that activated protein C is associated with significant risk of bleeding, so strict inclusion and exclusion criteria should be set prior to administering activated protein C. Sixth Donald F. Egan Scientific Memorial Lecture was presented by Rubin, 
and the associated paper is entitled Air and Soul, the Science and Application of Aerosol Therapy. This manuscript reviews the history of aerosol therapy, discusses patient, drug, and device factors that can influence the success of aerosol therapy, and identifies trends that will drive the science of aerosol therapy in the future. Aerosol medication is generally less expensive, works more rapidly, and produces fewer side effects than the same drug given systemically. Aerosol therapy has been used for thousands of years by steaming and burning plant material. In the 50 years since the invention of the metered dose inhaler, advances in drugs and devices have made aerosols the most commonly used way to deliver therapy for asthma and COPD. The requirements for aerosol therapy depend on the target site of action and the underlying disease. Medication to treat airways disease should deposit on the conducting airways. Effective deposition of airway particles generally requires particle size between 0.5 and 5 micrometer mass median aerodynamic diameter. However, a smaller particle size neither equates to greater side effects nor greater effectiveness. However, medications like peptides intended for systemic absorption need to deposit on the alveolar capillary bed. Thus, ultrafine particles, a slow inhalation, and relatively normal airways that do not hinder aerosol penetration will optimize systemic delivery. Aerosolized antimicrobials are often used for the treatment of cystic fibrosis or bronchiectasis, and mucoactive agents to promote mucus clearance have been delivered by aerosol. As technology improves, a greater variety of novel medications are being delivered for aerosol delivery, including as therapy for pulmonary hypertension, as vaccines, for decreasing dyspnea, to treat airway inflammation, for migraine headaches, for nicotine and drug addiction, and ultimately for gene therapy. Common reasons for therapeutic failure of aerosol medications include the use of inactive or depleted medications, inappropriate use of the aerosol device, and, most importantly, poor adherence to prescribed therapy. The respiratory therapist plays a key role in patient education, device selection, and outcomes assessment. The 25th Philip Kittredge Memorial Lecture was presented by Needham, and the associated paper is Patient Safety, Quality of Care, and Knowledge Translation in the Intensive Care Unit. A large gap exists between the completion of clinical research demonstrating the benefit of new treatment interventions and improved patient outcomes resulting from implementation of these interventions as part of a routine clinical practice. This gap clearly affects patient safety and quality of care. Knowledge translation is important for addressing this gap, but evaluation of the most appropriate and effective knowledge translation methods is still ongoing. Through describing one model for knowledge translation and an example of its implementation, insights can be gained into systematic methods for advancing the implementation of evidence-based interventions to improve safety, quality, and patient outcomes. I'm back with some commentary on this month's papers. 
The effectiveness of aerosol delivery during mechanical ventilation is influenced by the patient, ventilator, and nebulizer variables. The impact of nebulizer type, position in the circuit, and bias flow has not been established for different age populations. It is against this background that we published two papers by Ari et al. In the first, they found that nebulizer placement between the ventilator and the humidifier increased drug delivery with both a jet nebulizer and a vibrating mesh nebulizer compared to the more common position near the ventilator Y-piece. Higher bias flow reduced drug delivery. Drug delivery with the vibrating mesh nebulizer was two to four-fold greater than with the jet nebulizer. In the second study, they evaluated drug delivery by jet nebulizer, vibrating mesh nebulizer, ultrasonic nebulizer, and meter dose inhaler with spacer in a model of adult mechanical ventilation. The important finding of both studies was that, during mechanical ventilation, optimal drug delivery efficiency depends on the aerosol generator, the ventilator circuit, and the aerosol generator position. As de Blasi points out in his editorial, these papers do not address clinical efficacy, but they do provide a foundation upon which clinical trials can be designed to determine the best way to deliver bronchodilators during mechanical ventilation. The team responsible for performing airway management throughout the hospital must have immediate access to intubation equipment. The bag containing airway equipment must be light enough to be carried easily and include equipment to manage airways in various settings. Transport of the bag throughout the hospital raises concern about transmission of infection. Wilcox et al. evaluated the effect of a change from one type of bag to another. They found that replacing a large canvas bag with a smaller nylon bag improved the transport of emergency airway equipment, including ease of locating equipment and reducing the transport of pathogens throughout the hospital. As Howard states in his editorial, Wilcox et al. are to be commended for identifying a problem, taking a multidisciplinary approach to finding a solution, and evaluating the effect of the intervention. Respiratory therapists are often involved in treating dying patients, but receive little instruction in end-of-life care. Brown-Saltzman et al. developed an interdisciplinary program to introduce practicing RTs to ethical and end-of-life issues. They found that a one-day interactive educational intervention can improve short-term RT comfort and role perception concerning end-of-life care. As Wilms states in his editorial, the RT has not only the technical expertise required for terminal extubations, but also a broader professional role that may enhance the professionalism and prestige of the field, as well as individual job satisfaction. In the 1970s and 80s, intermittent positive pressure breathing treatments were commonly administered to many patients with various forms of respiratory failure. Lacking evidence of benefit, IPPB treatments fell out of favor by the late 20th century. Guerin et al. conducted a short-term study in stable patients with neuromuscular disease to determine the effects of IPPB with and without an abdominal belt. IPPB was performed as 30 consecutive deep breaths up to 30 centimeters of water in several body positions. Supine IPPB treatments with or without an abdominal belt increased ventilation to anterior regions of the lungs. Interestingly, the effects three hours after IPPB treatments remained higher than at baseline and was best preserved by the use of an abdominal belt. Further study is needed to determine whether outcomes might be improved in this patient population with the use of IPPB.
The long-term stability of the accuracy of a specific model of spirometer should be carefully characterized before modification of the frequency of calibration checks is considered. Sklot et al. evaluated the EZ-1 spirometer calibration stability over a four-year period in conjunction with the World Trade Center Worker and Volunteer Medical Screening Program. They found that this specific spirometer retained volume accuracy of better than 3% for at least four years. However, whether similar results might occur with other spirometers is not known, and thus these results should not be generalized to all portable spirometers. Current generation ventilators allow clinician adjustment of rise time during pressure-targeted ventilation. Murata et al. investigated the effect of inspiratory rise time on inspiratory workload during pressure support ventilation in six ICU ventilators. They found that a short inspiratory rise time decreased inspiratory workload regardless of other settings on the ventilator. As this was a lung model study, additional work is necessary to determine whether these findings translate to the clinical setting. Positive effects from non-invasive ventilation or supplemental oxygen on exercise capacity in patients with COPD are well known. In a study by Borgi Silva et al., patients with stable COPD undergoing an exercise training program were randomized to either non-invasive ventilation or supplemental oxygen. They found that non-invasive ventilation alone was better than supplemental oxygen alone to promote beneficial physiologic adaptations to physical exercise in patients with severe COPD. Hashimi et al. conducted a case control study to evaluate occupational exposures and obstructive lung disease. They found that hairdressing work is associated with a high frequency of work-initiated respiratory symptoms and, to a lesser extent, with allergic symptoms, particularly after exposure to bleaching powder and hairspray. Because this study was conducted in Iran, further work is necessary to determine whether similar results occur elsewhere. Activated protein C reduces 28-day mortality in patients with severe sepsis, but its anticoagulant properties carry a risk of bleeding. Khan et al. conducted a systematic review and meta-analysis of the prevalence of severe bleeding events and intracranial hemorrhage in patients receiving activated protein C. The results of the meta-analysis suggest that activated protein C is associated with significant risk of bleeding, so strict inclusion and exclusion criteria should be set prior to administering this drug. We are pleased to publish the 36th Donald F. Egan Scientific Memorial Lecture by Rubin, which reviews the history of aerosol therapy, discusses patient drug and device factors that can influence the success of aerosol therapy, and identifies trends that may drive the science of aerosol therapy in the future. We are equally pleased to publish the 25th Philip Kittredge Memorial Lecture by Needham, which addresses issues related to patient safety, quality of care, and knowledge translation in the ICU. A case report by Lan et al. documents the diagnosis and treatment of a solitary primary tracheal small cell lung cancer causing acute respiratory failure. Another case report by Kruder et al. describes a 65-year-old man with endobronchial gossipiboma after lobectomy for abscessing pneumonia. The teaching case of the month by Bavishi recounts a case of pulmonary cryptococcosis caused by capsule-deficient cryptococcus neoformans in an immunocompetent patient. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www 
www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.